Welcome to ADHD is over, a new podcast on a seemingly old label that we're going to be peeling off. Join my wife, Tatiana, and I as we journey with our family, the Wyden family, through the land of confusing information. We're going to visit both sides and let you decide because the power is with you. Welcome to ADHD is over. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. My guest today is Anne Bracken. Anne is a former public school teacher and special ed speech pathologist with degrees from Towson University and Johns Hopkins University. Anne is also a poet, a writer, and an activist, and her poetry, essays, and interviews have appeared in numerous anthologies and journals, including Awakenings Review, Mad in America, Fledgling Rag, and Gargoyle. Today, Anne and I will discuss the story of her own son's ADHD diagnosis and his experience with stimulant medication, as well as Anne's year-long struggle trying to get herself off of antidepressants. Her latest book, Crash, a memoir of over-medication and recovery, explores mother-daughter experiences of mismanaged care for depression and chronic pain, and tells the multi-generational story using primary source records, journal entries, and current medical research. It is my pleasure to welcome Anne Bracken. Hi, Anne. Hi, Roman. Nice to be here. Well, it's so good to have you. Um, you have a hell of a story, and I'm excited for our listeners to hear your story, your experience, not just around ADHD, medication, public school system, uh, but also in regards to over-medication, uh, dealing with getting off of antidepressants and so forth. So we got a power-packed um, episode here for everybody. I'm really excited. So I want to start uh, chronologically and just take us back to uh, your the beginning of your career. So you were a you're a former uh, public school teacher and a special ed speech pathologist. And maybe just take us back there in memory lane and tell us your first encounter with this this thing called ADHD or what you observed at the time. Okay. Um, I started teaching in 1974, and I graduated from a university in Baltimore, Maryland, where I thought I had very good training to go out and do my job. Um, but my second year of teaching, I found myself sitting on uh, a panel called a screening committee in the local elementary school. And what that was composed of was a couple of administrators, the school psychologist, uh, the reading teacher, myself, and maybe one or two other people, usually the classroom teacher. And we would take referrals from teachers who were having um, challenges with children in their classroom. And I began to hear about hyperactive children. And I, I don't remember hearing much about that at all in college. And I certainly didn't learn about using any kind of stimulant medication with children. But on the committees, most often it would be, you know, the story would be, well, he's got a late birthday. And it was almost always a he, it was never a she. Um, and late birthday means November, December, even January, because at the time we could have kids with a birthday up to uh, January 10th or something, I think. Um, so 
you know, they would say, well, he gets out of his seat a lot and he, he, he doesn't raise his hand and he can't finish his work. So we think he has attention deficit disorder and we're going to uh, talk to the parent about medication. So as I recall, I don't even know if they told the parents that they should really be consulting a doctor. And, you know, being the least experienced person on the committee, I didn't want to ask too many questions to like reveal my own ignorance, but I would talk to people outside of the committee. And when I asked the school psychologist exactly what this medication was, all he said to me was, you know, the, these children uh, can't attend, they're, they're too busy, they're not focused, and these medications affect them differently than they affect other people. And I thought, okay, well, you know, that makes sense, but nobody talked about the downside. The only thing we would hear would sometimes would be, well, he's having a little trouble sleeping, but is okay on the weekends. And his mother's concerned because he doesn't seem to be growing as much as he was before, but that'll take care of, take care of itself in the summertime when he comes off the medication. So, you know, I really knew very little about the whole phenomenon of treating kids with ADHD and I felt out of my element. And you, you said uh, two interesting things. You said that uh, they would say that on the weekends they can catch up and then in the summer, right, when they're on vacation. So in mm -hmm. essence, it was it was limited to school setting. It wasn't Absolutely. necessarily a, a attention deficit disorder. It was more like attention deficit disorder at school. Right. right. And what did you how did that land or how does that still land hearing that? Right now. Well, it lands differently now. At the time, I don't really think I was quite connecting all the dots um, because I I listened to your interview with Bruce Levine the other day, and I have to say I identify with those people who are rule followers and who do well in school, although I'm not as much of a rule follower as I used to be, but certainly when I was uh, a lot younger and when I was a student, I was. So it, it didn't hit me wrong, you know, that that they should be attending in school and they should be finishing their work. I I really wasn't making those connections. Mm. And how did you so continuing your career, right, working with uh, special ed children, uh, uh, tell us a bit about like how you would mature into in your career and how you would start to kind of feel maybe something's off here. OK, so that began to happen when my own son entered school in the 80s and his um, first grade teacher showed me his desk and said, this is all of his unfinished work. He's just not doing his work in the classroom. And we think he has ADHD. And I was just shocked. I thought, well, what has happened in the seven years since I left teaching and started to stay home and raise my kids. You know, my son, Brian, pays attention at home. He, he was an independent child. He could amuse himself for hours. He was very bright. He read early. And I thought, I really don't know what she's talking about. But we were moving uh, within a month or so. And I thought, well, he's going to start a new school. So we went to the new school 
things went pretty well for second grade, but by third grade, uh, he started acting up a little bit in the classroom and he got into trouble one day. I don't know, he, he might've tripped another boy in the classroom and he got called into the office and the principal called me into the school and he was very angry. Brian was very apologetic. He felt terrible about the whole thing. The principal talking to me said, look, you either medicate this kid or I will. Wow. Wow. That's, and you know, what's, what's amazing to me, and this is in the eighties, right? Yes. And we're yeah. almost 40 years later. Yes. Um, the same, pretty much the same words were used by uh, the teachers and the principal at the school where my son was sort of singled out in about, you know, seven years ago, where mm -hmm. they said like, well, you better medicate him uh, to stay in this school, right? Yeah. And it just amazes me that 40 years later, we're still buying into the same narrative, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. So we did uh, go to the pediatrician. He gave us the infamous checklist. So Brian hardly had any problems at home, but in school, the teacher checked off more behaviors and the doctor, I, I think he gave Brian a prescription for Ritalin. And um, I just remember this one night, Brian saying to me, mommy, will this pill fix me? Wow. Which, which tells us that a child internalizes being labeled with a disorder as I'm broken. Something's wrong with me. So yes. will this fix me? Right. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And that just broke my heart. I just, you know, I just really didn't want to continue with this anymore. So we found a psychologist and we worked with him and he worked with Brian for a month or so. He interviewed me and my husband and he, he called us both in and he said, you know, your, your son doesn't have ADHD. He's, he said, really, Brian's very bright. He's, he's just bored in the classroom and he's finding other ways to, you know, kind of make it through the day. And they're not always the best adaptation, but that's essentially what he's doing. So we took him off the medication and that was the end of that. Uh, and how long roughly was he on Ritalin? You know, probably a couple of months, realistically, not not even a year. I'm sure it was just a couple of months. And did you, I'm not sure if that's enough time, but did you notice any, uh, anything, uh, any different behaviors, emotional, physical, uh, any side effects or anything? I know it's no. a short amount of time, but yeah. No, I really, and I really don't remember, but I didn't, yeah, I yeah. don't recall noticing anything really different with him. Yeah, yeah, that's maybe not enough time. I was just curious. Um, so uh, we talked before and you had mentioned that he really hated school. Like, can you just talk yes. a little bit about like what he hated, what he said, how it felt as a parent dealing with it? Well, like I said a few minutes ago, I was a rule follower and it was very important in my family to have good academic achievement. And Brian was very bright. So I was just completely mystified as to why he wasn't excelling in school because he was obviously very smart. And he, he just thought it was stupid. You know, he would come home and he'd say, well, why should I do that? I already know how to do that. I, I don't want to do that, sit in school and do that. And he didn't, he didn't really care if he missed recess because he basically just didn't want to do the work that he considered stupid or boring. 
So he was pretty much like that all the way through until he graduated from high school. He he did find the band in middle school and high school, and that pretty much saved him because uh, he he loved being in the band. He loved he played the drums. He was in the jazz band. He was in the marching band. That that just made school for him. He was very happy. And then when he started college, um, he got a lease. And I just said, "Wow, can you just tell me what the difference is? And he said, you know, mom, it counts now. So, wow. That's, I mean, you just want to reflect on that, right? First of all, uh, here's a child that's become an adult. And inside of the narrative, the mainstream narrative, it's said that ADHD is a lifelong condition. You can't outgrow it, literally. Right. Even though there's no, there's no scientific studies and statistics that prove it, parents are fed that belief. And so... Again, I've talked to hundreds of parents and including my own son, a clear evidence that ADHD symptoms, we always say ADHD is not a real thing. The struggle is real, but it's a made up right. disorder based right. on symptoms, which are really behaviors. So those behaviors seem to have dissolved or disappeared in, in the case of Brian's life. Right. Yes. And he now is he now is telling you not only does he is he doing well at, at college, he's getting A's and mm -hmm. he feels that it counts. And to me, that's just a, such a great line. It's almost like what we did before was sort of like, yeah, yeah, just memorize it. Just get it right. done because you get the. But now he was able to, I'm assuming, choose what he wanted to yes. study, right? Yes, exactly. And he thrived in college. He he did very well. He he liked it. He, you know, he, and he still he didn't graduate from a four year school, but he has taught himself um, studio engineering. He's a very good photographer. He um, has excellent carpentry skills. So he's he's put together his life the way that he likes it. And he doesn't have a lot of uh, people to answer to. And that just suits his personality. But he's he's very successful. That's amazing. That's really great. And the, the, so here's a question for you as a parent, as a fellow parent. And we have a series on this podcast where we interviewed, you know, adults that, that were said to have ADHD as kids, and we call it so and so turned out. So would you as a parent say that Brian turned out? Absolutely. Absolutely. And when I when I started back to teaching after my kids were grown, um, you know, that was the message I wanted to share with other parents. I was, again, a special education teacher this time in high school, and I primarily taught boys with learning disabilities in English or reading classes. And like many kids who aren't doing well in school, they developed a lot of uh, evasive behaviors, uh, humorous behaviors. You know, they, it was never boring to work with them the challenge was to get them to do some work. But what I quickly realized was that these behaviors were to hide um, their deficits, you know, to hide what they were struggling with. And if I could break through that and form a relationship with them, then we could start to move forward. So when the parents would come in and they'd be so worried, I would tell them Brian's story in essence. And I'd say, you know, He's fine. He he's he's doing fine. He just had to do it his own way. And I think maybe 
you know, your son might be like that too. And, and one of the struggles was always homework. And eventually, you know, it took me, a, I didn't realize it when I was raising my kids, but I realized it as a parent, as a teacher, kids have so little power. Maybe the only power a child has is to say, I'm not doing this homework and you can't make me. And that's, and they're right. Or I'm not going to study. You can't make me study. So, you know, they have to exert their power somehow. Yeah, especially if there's another power dynamic, a struggle in the household between Mm -hmm. the parents and, you know, if there's physical, verbal abuse or you name it. And what I love about what you just said is that, you know, we call it attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. We call it the attention deficit, but really there's a deficit in attention that they're not getting and attention in terms of having their issues addressed, having their traumas worked with and all that stuff. So therefore anything other than that is a distraction because they don't want to, they don't want to deal with it. They can't deal with it. And so it's almost like, we're labeling them. And I love what you said. And when we talked before, you said that we're, we're trying to change the kids, but not yes. the environment. Yes. And I, when I taught high school, I worked uh, a couple of years with a, a younger teacher who, who had a high need for order and control. And I don't, you know, I, I can run a more free form classroom and feel fine and have things go well. She was not able to do that. And I used to look at the kids in there that were so bored, you know, and they'd be rolling a pencil across the desk or they'd be pushing the desk up so that it was slanted and they'd start banging on it like it was a drum. And, you know, I just thought we're, we're trying to change the kid we're not looking at the environment we're not looking at what we're asking them to do so absolutely and you know even just talking about homework i have a dear friend who just told me this morning again and most days she really struggles with her son just not revolting but he just hates doing homework and then she gets stressed and then they're stressed together and if we just stopped and said, like, why are we giving an eight year old an hour and a half homework? That is like, that is more like, I sometimes have days where I don't like hyper focus for an hour and a half. And I'm an adult. And this is stuff that I have to do. Right. And then we expect these eight year olds to do that and sit still for an additional six hours during the day or however much, you know, whatever school you go to. It just seems like a lot. I think we're stressing them out on top of them already being stressed out by just being kids and trying to adapt yes. to this world, right? Yes. I. So when I talk to other teachers, like my daughter's a teacher in a private school. She teaches in a middle school and school just started out here. And she told me the other day, you know, mom, the guidance counselor has already come to me and said that I should be on the lookout for so-and-so's ADHD behaviors. And she kind of smirked and I said, okay, well, you know, you and I can talk about this. Um, But she's, she's tuned into the whole thing. She really understands what's going on with this label of ADHD. And she's troubled by seeing the kids be on medication, but there's really not much she can do about it. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh that's the reality uh, today. Like I know uh, quite a few teachers as well who are always told to, it's not like they're told to watch out for, 
but quickly someone will say, oh, they might have ADHD, right? right? Yes. And we just isolate it from the environmental factors and stressors of the child's life. Um, and we make it this pathology, this like, oh, there's something wrong with the child here. And it's just sad. And maybe this is a good moment to, um, to talk about how you eventually uh, through your own personal you know, experience started to question this over medication or medication itself, or that that's the best solution and so forth. So maybe you can take us to that kind of aha moment that, that threw you into this, this long research period. Okay. So uh, a couple of things happened. I, um, experienced a very severe depression towards the end of my marriage. And uh, along with that, a severe migraine that lasted for a number of years. And I uh, saw a headache specialist and I saw a number of psychiatrists and they both medicated me. They, by the time uh, the year 2000 came around, which was four years of depression, I was taking four or five psychiatric drugs. And that was year seven of the migraine. I was taking um, methadone orally. I was using uh, a couple of injections for the headache. I was using a nasal spray and I had injectable Demerol for what they called the really bad days. Um, I was a mess and I wasn't seeing any way out of this. I wasn't, I was out of depression, but I was still medicated with all these psychiatric drugs. And I still had this horrible headache pain. Eventually I had two car accidents. And with the second car accident it happened in Baltimore city in the middle of the afternoon on a city street, I fell asleep and crashed into a van. So. I realized I, if somebody had been walking between my car and that van, I, I could have killed somebody. And I thought, you know, I just have to stop taking, I have to do something different. So I, I went home, I called an energy healer. Uh, I told her what happened. I said, I need help. This isn't working and I need help. And I want to work on my life. Wow. That is, I just want to say, there's this parallel in your story about, you know, um, you're going through stuff in life, right? You have a divorce or mar a rough marriage, a divorce. You, um, you're, you're then taking the medication because you're told that you have depression, which is basically due to uh, the circumstances, right? Yes. The experiences in your life. It's not, yeah. it wasn't the separate thing that you suddenly had. Right. like a thing, like a, a disorder that suddenly showed up. But same thing with children with ADHD, right? That we say, oh, that, that kid has ADHD, but we don't question, we don't look into like what's really going on in their lives. I mean, we have some questionnaires that ask some questions, but we're, we're not spending enough time is my point to really look at, okay, what are you dealing with? And maybe then we could use, uh, medications as like a band as a temporary band-aid a temporary solution while we get our quote unquote lives back together so now here you are 
almost crashed or crashed into a car, had two car accidents. You got chronic pain. You got still have your headaches and depression and stuff. And so I'm excited to hear you go to an energy healer and most people be like, yeah, I don't know if that's going to work out, but what happened? Uh, well, it was even stranger than that because I didn't go to her. I called her on the phone and she oh. worked long distance. So she lived in a, I lived in out way out in the County and she lived in Baltimore and I would call her on the phone and get into my bed and lie down and she would communicate with my energetic being, which wow. you know, at the time I wasn't, I was definitely into spirituality but I had never had an experience like this. And it's, I could actually start to feel some benefit after a couple of weeks. And I, I believe I was working with my headache doctor to get off of the, especially get off of the methadone. Um, but I don't remember because the drugs really mess up your memory. So I don't remember exactly what we were doing, but I began decreasing the methadone. And then the energy healer said, well, I'm going to give you some flower essences. And I said, are you <laughs> kidding? Are you kidding me? I'm taking methadone. <laughs> yeah. Now you're going to do some aromatherapy and, you know, whatever flower essences. And that must have been a big like what? Is that exactly, going to work? Exactly. But you know what? I thought nothing else has worked. I'm going to do exactly what she says. I am committed to getting well and I'm going to do what she says. And within four months of working with her, she had helped me to get rid of all my headache pain. Wow. And, and this is, yes. sorry to interrupt. You had told me that you pretty much had a migraine headache a day for seven years. It was all, it was continuous for seven years. Yes. Wow. I mean, yes. that's, that's intense. And yes. all that started to disappear after four months of energy healing. It, it was gone at the end of four months. Wow. That's and incredible. Yes. And I was, I was able to get off of all the headache medication, no more methadone, no more Demerol, no more injections or nasal spray or anything. Wow. And to me, again, besides the energy healing, the spirituality, people can question that. I get it. I believe in it, but some people don't. And I can right. respect that. But right. even besides that, to look at this side by side and say, you took heavy duty, uh, you know, pharmaceuticals, medications that were trying to address the symptoms, right? At the same time, the energy healing must have done something to still disappear without using any of those pharmaceuticals. So the question to me, the big question is, uh, why aren't we looking into that more? Why do we keep medicating? I, I totally agree. <laughs> I, I think it has to do with money. Somehow. Oh, really? Really? Yes. <laughs> Say more about that, Anne. <laughs> well, I... Along with methadone, the first two drugs I was given by my headache doctor were um, MS Contin, made by the Sackler Company, and Oxycontin, also made by the Sackler Company. And my it was 1996. That's when Oxycontin came out. And the headache doctor said, this is not addicting. As long as you're using it for pain, it's not addicting. Now, years later, looking back at that, I'm thinking, well, how does my body know what I'm using it for? You know, it. So, great. yeah, great point. Right. Yeah, and but 
And go ahead. So, you know, I was on that drug for years and it didn't it didn't take away the pain and neither did the methadone. And when she gave me methadone, I had to go to the pharmacy. I had to show my driver's license. I had to sign for the medication. It was humiliating. I felt humiliated. I felt like a failure. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. And that reminds me of, uh, for our listeners, if you haven't seen the Hulu show dope sick with Michael Keaton, uh, that basically illustrates that story that we're talking about with Oxycontin. It's insane how blatantly uh, uh, shady this business is. And not all of it. There are medications and drugs that, you know, save lives and for emergencies. But most of it, I would even say 70%, 75% of the drugs that we sell and market, they know these are harmful drugs. They right. know it. And still they're being sold and even used, you know, prescribed by psychologists, technically illegally for children, because a lot of them are not approved for adolescents. So, you know, there's just a lot of out of integrity out there. Yes. Uh, And unquestioning, you know, doctors, the way that I talk about it in my book is that I look at it as a model. So, for example, my mother suffered from chronic depression, and at times she would have chronic pain with no with no identifiable cause. And at one point, she had intense tooth pain. And my father took her to all these dentists to and, and neurologists. This one dentist said, "Well, I can't find anything wrong, but we should pull all of her teeth." Wow. just in case well let's let's start there yeah yeah right let's just take all of her teeth out that'll solve the problem you know my mother was being heavily drugged at the time with psychotropic drugs antidepressants pain pills you know everything and one doctor finally said you know i think she might be depressed And they put her in the hospital. They had to detox her in the hospital because she was on so many drugs. Wow. That's got to wrap your head around that. That was chronic pain with no identifiable cause. And when I talk about a model, you know, you go to a dentist, the dentist is going to look at your teeth. That's their model. They think teeth, jaws, something like that. Um, What do you call it? TMJ syndrome with pain. You go to a psychiatrist, they're going to say uh, mental illness, you know, anxiety, depression, bipolar disorder. You go to an orthopedist, sometimes, if you're lucky, they'll say you don't need surgery. <laughs> but, you know, that's, that's their framework of how they look at things. They, they right. tend to look at things in a box. They don't look at people holistically. Right. And if you go to the right energy healer, they will say, how's your marriage? <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding, but I'm not kidding. You know, like those are the tough questions to ask. Right. Well, so, she, she did say that to me. She said, um, don't you want to work on your marriage? And I said, I've been working on my marriage for 20 years. I want to work on me. So nice. Yeah, no, I get it. I get it. So yeah. your mom, so she had depression in the 60s. She went through, and I believe you said they even gave her Ritalin at the time, right? Yes. They're just kind of yeah. throwing the kitchen sink at her. Um, and then, so the book, the book that you wrote, right, 
uh, is called Crash, a memoir of overmedication and recovery. And I, I love how it says, explores a mother-daughter experiences of mismanaged care for depression and chronic pain and tells the multi-generational story. Um, so how long did it take you from the research to writing the book to, you know, get, getting it done? Uh, and we're going to put some links in the show notes so our listeners can uh, pre-order the book or know where to order the book. But what was the journey like and how long did it take? The journey took me five years to write the book and, and get it published. And I decided to write the book when I saw Sam Quinones on YouTube. He, Sam Quinones wrote a book about the opioid epidemic called Dreamland. And I was watching it one day and he started talking about 1996 and Oxycontin and this epidemic and that they told people it wasn't addicting. And I said, oh, my God, that's what happened to me. That's exactly what happened to me. I didn't get addicted, but I had car accidents. You know, I was severely over-medicated. This is a serious problem. I'm going to write about this. So I began to do research all about um, the opioid crisis. And I, I was off of all psychiatric drugs by 2002. And that was also... I guess you would say fortuitous because I was teaching in a college and my students were doing papers on the overprescription of um, SSRIs. And I thought, I've never seen that before. What are they talking about? And I, I read one of the books that they referenced and decided to get off my psychiatric drugs. So wow. I was very fortunate not to have any trouble getting off the drugs except for one drug that was Elevil. And that took me over a year to discontinue. But I didn't have any bad neurological effects. Some people get brain zaps or, you know, um, extreme anxiety, sleeplessness. There, there are many withdrawal effects coming off of psychiatric drugs. So just a cautionary note. If you are taking psychiatric drugs and you think you want to discontinue them, you really do need to find someone to help you. Um, and yeah. I have a list of resources in the back of my book. Um, that's that's really great. Yeah. And I would agree. And, and the same for parents. You know, we we're not doctors. We're not experts here. We're not saying stop the medication, get off of it. That has to be done in a very careful manner because these drugs are very strong. They're very potent. As yes. we know, you know, Ritalin, Adderall, those kind of drugs are scheduled to alongside right. of meth, cocaine, yes. uh, not to be messed with. Right. And what's the I mean, what's the parallel? I mean, there's some obvious parallels we can draw here between uh, antidepressants and uh, 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 stimulant drugs given for ADHD, right? Right. One thing so, is, go ahead, yeah. So I was going to say, you know, so I wrote a version of the book and then my sister decided to move. So my other sister and I were helping her clean out the attic and we found boxes and boxes of my father's effects. And in one box was a big folder that just said depression on it. And so my sister immediately just says, Ooh, depression. <laughs> and I said, Oh, I'll take it. So I <laughs> took it home. I opened it up and there were 30 years worth of my father's records, uh, detailing my mother's treatment. Wow. 
So I had the missing piece of why she never got well, because I always thought it was because she self-medicated with alcohol and took the drugs and the alcohol was what impaired her recovery. But it was so much more than that. And the first drugs that they gave her were amphetamines. And I was just so angry when I, you know, in, in a six week period, she was on six drugs. And I think mostly at the same time, um, she just had a complete collapse and the rest of her history looks the same. She's, they, they just give her tons and tons of drugs. And when I found the records and started, I, I was like, why were they giving her amphetamines? Cause I didn't know that beginning in the thirties, that was the primary drug that we in this country gave people for depression. Right. To give them an upper, to make them yes. feel better. Yes. It makes sense. But the thing is, as same with uh, uh, ADHD medications, they not only work on people with so-called ADHD or depression, they work on anyone the same way. Yes. Like if I take amphetamines and I don't have ADHD, or at least I don't think so, you know, uh, well, of course I don't have it, but I'm joking. But, you know, <laughs> I, I feel, and I tried them for this project, I feel that rush, that mm -hmm. same like, ooh, I'm kind of happy. It's a good day. Yeah, let's do some stuff, right? Right. Right. And just like somebody with ADHD or, or depression has similar reactions. So it's actually even uh, uh, inappropriate to say these are for ADHD. Right. These exactly. are for depression because they're not. Exactly. So when I when I started digging into the origins of of amphetamines, you know, one of the ways that we use them in this country and it's in the advertising is to get housewives to do boring tasks. And that just seems just right in line with what goes on in the school is that the children that don't want to do the worksheets or sit in the desk uh, are the ones that we want to medicate because those are routine, boring tasks. Yep. Yep. I, I, I call it the absence of the purpose. You know, when we say, right. what's the purpose? Right. Well, if a child doesn't see purpose in a task or a housewife doesn't have a purpose in life and just going through the motions, right? I mean, it's valid to take care of your, your chores and tasks and keep the mm -hmm. house clean. I'm not knocking that, but, and maybe this is back in the fifties, but still, or sixties, there's that like, oh, wait, but if there's no purpose, why am I doing it? So hence Brian saying, oh, oh, now there's a, a point to it. Now there's right. a, a, exactly. you know. Exactly. The reason why I, I want to do this or got to do this. So, but I think the biggest thing that uh, really educated me as a former teacher and that I've been sharing with my daughter and with pretty much anybody who will listen is Robert Whitaker's book, The Anatomy of an Epidemic. And he has a whole chapter on ADHD. And in that chapter, he has a chart that shows the effects of stimulant drugs and and what it's like to come, you know, what happens when you come off the drug, even in a day, because you're on and off within a day. Um, and he compares that with the symptoms for bipolar disorder. And there's an almost one-to-one -one match. And when I saw that chart and started learning about, you know, this epidemic of childhood bipolar disorder, I just thought, what in the heck? are we doing 
And why don't special ed teachers know more? Because I, I still don't think they do. I left the public schools in 2011, and it was pretty much the same scenario as when I started in the 70s. You know, people, people just very casually referred to the drugs. Um, so Robert yeah. Whitaker's book really enlightened me as far as ADHD goes. And, and um, yeah, he's a, he's a great man. We've had him on our podcast and I can highly recommend for the listeners to listen to his podcast on, on our show here, his episode, and also go to madinamerica.com, which is what you've, you've also contributed there as a writer. And uh, there's so much information there and it's always backed up by studies, by science. It's, it's right. not, you know, it's not just a conspiracy theory kind of website. It's really uh, uh, well backed up. And so I can highly recommend that. Yes, absolutely. And I, you know, I just think what I've looked, so between Robert Whitaker's book and the first book I read about uh, psychiatric medication called Prozac Backlash by Joseph Glenn Mullen. When I read that book, that was published in 2000. So that's 22 years ago, which means that he would have to use research from the 90s or before. So here I am reading this book in 2002, and I'm thinking, he's saying all these things like, They've known for years that um, antidepressants can lead to bipolar disorder, that in just plain old ordinary people like me with depression, if you, in some people over time, that will switch to bipolar disorder. <laughs> and I just thought they've known this for years and years and they're still giving yeah. the drugs. Yeah. And, and he talks, that's where I learned about clinical trials, too. He talked a lot about how the clinical trials for Prozac were were rigged, really, and that the they wanted uh, the Eli Lilly company wanted a drug that they could just give with one dosage for everybody. They didn't want to step up the way that the tricyclic antidepressants were done. They just wanted this one shot that general practitioners could give to people. So they started people with 20 milligrams of Prozac and people were so agitated that they didn't want to continue the trial. So they started giving people Valium along with the Prozac and continuing to call it a clinical trial. And you know, the, the um, ethical people who were looking at this said, well, when you give two drugs and you're testing one, that invalidates the trial. Yeah, it's it's great. I love the term rigged. Uh, we often use the term uh, cherry picked, right? You have a yeah. study that comes out and right. they go, well, yeah, maybe not in the long run, but in the first four years, it's effective. So we'll call it effective, right? Yeah. And so many great experts have poked holes into these theories, whether it's chemical imbalance or it's a genetic or it's a, a, a you know, brain dysfunction or trying to do imaging, brain imaging, and all of them have been debunked. And yet still the mainstream narrative is still using the same headlines that we all hear, right? That parents hear and they get scared. Oh my God, my son's not going to turn out. I better medicate. So in your, in your opinion, what can we do today? What can parents do? What can educators do? What's your general, uh, hate to say solution, but what would you recommend to uh, this world 
of, of, of ADHD or, you know, what can be done? I think, um, number one, as a parent, go back to how you feel about your child. And every parent that I know really loves their kid and thinks that their kids are wonderful, despite any issues that they may have in raising that child. So go, go back to that standpoint of seeing the good in your child and, you know, try to imagine what else might be going on. There's plenty of reasons why people don't pay attention or why people don't like school. A friend of mine told me that her son had terrible anxiety and he, he had it so bad in middle school that he, he eventually had to be hospitalized. He never told his parents that he was being horribly bullied in school. So no wonder he had anxiety. You know, he, he didn't really need medication in a hospital. He needed somebody at school to be helping him deal with this bullying situation. So, you know, one of the things that I do as a writer is try to reframe language. I, I no longer say I have anxiety. I say, sometimes I feel anxious. Yeah. You know, I no longer say I had depression. I say, well, I had an experience of feeling depressed. So I yeah. distance it from myself so that it's not like a body part. Yeah. And, and, you know, if you think about it, feeling depressed, feeling anxious, they are feelings. These are emotions right. moving through right. our bodies. But when we say I have depression, we're making it, like I said earlier with ADHD, we're making it a thing. Yes. And where is it located? Show me the thing. There are no, still no biomarkers. There's still no right. medical tests, no actual proof that these disorders are things, hence they're made up. Right. You know, and, and, and just like I, I really rebel at the idea of calling depression and anxiety um, and bipolar, calling them mental illnesses. That to me is so disempowering. You know, right. I, I, I just, I refuse to do that. I, it's normal to live in the world and to struggle. Absolutely. It's normal to feel sad. It's normal at times to feel despondent, to have no energy. It's just part of being human. And to pathologize that into labeling people as mentally ill. I, I can't think of a worse term. I, I mean, I a hundred, a thousand percent agree with you. And I've said this before in many episodes, like our son, who's now 13, who was diagnosed at seven or six and a half. Uh, we never put him on medication. We went to work on really like stabilizing the environment, bringing peace, as much peace to the environment, pulling out anxiety, things that gave him anxiety, you know, calm that calming down the nervous system. And right. today he has zero impulsivity and zero hyperactivity. And he's still interested in many things and he needs to be stimulated. He likes a lot of input, but those so-called uh, uh, symptoms that are supposed to last for life have in seven years already dissolved. Wow. That's, and that's great. It's just, you know, and I'm not saying this to say, ha look what we did, but if we can do it, if we did it with our son, 
I think any human being can do what you just described and not label themselves with a disempowering made up disorder, but just honor those feelings and start working on, uh, uh, you know, diminishing or reducing the amount of stress, anxiety, fear in their lives and things will change. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I think about this, I, I spent three, three years volunteering in Maryland prisons and running a writing group, uh, primarily with, with incarcerated men. And I began to see real parallels with being diagnosed with a mental illness and being a prisoner because people don't believe prisoners. You know, the first thing people would say to me would be, weren't you scared? Um, were they trying to run a game on you? And I said, nobody was running a game on me. They were some of the best students I've ever had. They were hungry to learn. They wanted to learn. Um, they were very eager students and bright people for the most part. But people don't believe you because you committed a crime. So therefore you're bad and you're evil. It's the same way with having experience an experience of depression then you fall into the basket of being mentally ill and psychiatrists even blow you off if you complain about your you know some of the side effects of your medications then you're either non-compliant or um they they have a term anagnosia which means you have a lack of insight into your condition oh oh okay <laughs> They can completely blow you off. It's like there's no way to win at their game. And prisoners, you know, people who are incarcerated feel almost the same way. So I, I could really identify um, with with their predicament. Yeah, it's, that's wonderful. The work you do there. I just want to acknowledge you for that, because, again, I, I, I do agree. They're sort of the outcast. Right. And. And I say this too, that a lot of the children with uh, learning disorders or, or attention deficit hyperactivity disorder are outcast, not just, I mean, starting from being labeled with a made up disorder, that's a stigma to me. Right. And, and now you're in special ed and everybody knows yes. what that really means. So yes. now you're outcast or at least you're looked at as less than, right? Trouble or challenged or whatever that ought to affect a child's self-confidence like a thousand percent. Like there, there's no other way we can explain a lot of this anxiety and depression and lack of self-esteem in our teenagers, right? right. Go back to their childhood. We can find the reasons. And yeah. a huge one is ADHD or yes. ODD or anxiety, depression, all those things. And here's a funny thing I wanted to say earlier. Um, Something that blew my mind recently is because I grew up in Switzerland, so my native tongue is German. Mm -hmm. And I looked up the word for some reason I needed to know anxiety. I'm like, what does anxiety mean in German? And you know what it means? What? Fear. Right. It's fear. So yes. if somebody has anxiety, it's like, yeah, you, you've got some fear running and you feel a little stressed, but that's it. You don't have anxiety. Right. Exactly. It, it and just hit and me. Yeah. I think, I think feelings of anxiety are a warning signal. You know, it's something for you to pay attention to. It's, it's an internal danger sign. So, you know, what is the danger that you're sensing and how can you best deal with that perceived danger? And is it real danger or is it like past trauma kind of PTSD type of perceived danger, right? Right. They're, bo they're both valid, yes. but they, they both have a different approach how to be treated. And if we then do the work there, it starts to dissolve. 
Yes. And, and the way that I see it is, you know, the feelings of anxiety that I've experienced and I still experience anxiety. Um, I believe that it, it comes up very strongly when your psyche is able to deal with it. So mm. at some point, I really wasn't able to dig into it and I just medicated it. But now when it comes up, I'm able to face it and say, okay, I have this feeling and I can ride through the storm. So I've developed tools to manage it, but I'm actually much more afraid of taking any kind of drugs for anxiety than I am of finding some other way to manage um, what at times can be some pretty overwhelming feelings. Absolutely. And I, and I think that, you know, when we look at our, society at large, right? This pressure, this timetable of how to push a child from birth through the school system into college, into a higher degree, into a career, into what we think will eventually turn into happiness, right? That, that stress, that complete push, if we don't slow that down, then I do understand how a lot of parents are scared that yes. their kid, their child isn't going to survive, isn't going to make it in this like sort of elbow dog eats dog world. Right. Right. And I get it at the same time. I think it's parents is sort of like this. Um, uh, uh, what is it? Uh, supply and demand. The more parents start to say like, hold on. Whoa, 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 whoa. I don't want to rush this. We're right. going to take, we're going to take him out of school for a year. We're going to homeschool. We're going to try a different school. We're going to, the more that happens, the systems will have to adjust. Right. They will. And I, I do believe having spent a lot of my career as a public school teacher and watching my own children go through public school, there's millions of good public school teachers. Um, and partly what's happened over the years is that the system is messed up, you know, with all the testing that with, when you, when you only have one metric of success, which is to pass the graduation test, then all your efforts go towards that metric and you kind of forget about everything else. Yeah. Um, so I think that there are good and compassionate people. I think a lot of times they need, they need more help. Absolutely. And I uh, thank you for adding that because I agree. I'm never a sort of a universal blanket statement kind of person that says all teachers are bad. All schools are bad. All, all medications are bad. That's never right. what we're saying. It's just the systems we've created. I agree with you um, have one, one thing in mind. One goal in mind is to create these productive members of society who can produce and make money and then live happily ever after. Yes. And that's crumbling. I mean, we're looking at the world today, this idea of like, if you're a doctor and a lawyer and a dentist, whatever, you'll be fine. You're rich. Good. Well, that's changed. Right. Um, so uh, you can work remotely. You can be in IT. You can design video games. You can create your own company. And, you know, there's just it's a new frontier. And I mm -hmm. think what we haven't yet changed is, unfortunately, uh, uh, to the contrary, we've sped up the speed in which we expect things to be done and, you know, People talk about the grind and like, go get it and work hard and work harder than the next person. And Elon Musk has become this, you know, idol of the guy who sleeps in the office and he's therefore productive and successful and famous, but we're not slowing down and stopping to say like, but are we truly happy and fulfilled? Are we actually balanced human beings? Right. And I think since the pandemic and so many people, you know, for good or for ill, 
we got to stay home. We got to be with our families more. Um, we got to slow down. So to me, those are the good parts of what came out of the pandemic. And a lot of people are questioning now, is this the way that I wanna live? You know, do I wanna be on this hamster wheel all the time? Um, I feel so much better now that I'm not doing X or now that I don't have to go to a certain place. So I think people really are beginning to question and they're beginning to say, you know, there's a whole lot more to life than uh, this grind that's being held out to me. I, I totally agree. I Same experience. I think the pandemic was a blessing in disguise. I think anyone that was trying to hold on to their old lives, their comfort zone, the, the, the living inside of the box and like preserving that is going to have a rude awakening next time something happens. This time, maybe they survived and it's fine, but I just think we need to uh, rethink how we live, what we do for a living, what we teach our children, uh, and starting with, you know, the school system, starting with the way we parent, starting with questioning pharmaceutical companies' motives, right? Yes. And, and you, I just want to acknowledge you again for doing five years of research and writing this book. Um, and for our listeners, again, if you're just listening in now or you fast forwarded, uh, Anne Bracken's book is called Crash, a memoir of over-medication and recovery. And the links to pre-order or to order a book will be in the show notes. And I just want to thank you, and for uh, so vulnerably sharing your own life story and the story of your son and your mother. Uh, thank you for blessing us with this information, and, and I've learned a lot myself. Thank you, Roman. It was really a great pleasure to be here and to be included um, among so many of your uh, guests on this show that I've listened to and learned from. And I just want to commend you for the work that you're doing to bring new information to all of us out here. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I appreciate it. It makes a difference hearing that because I'm really committed to, you know, if I can change one child's life with mm -hmm. this podcast and this movement, that's really it. Hopefully more than one, but you know, one, one life is worth it. So thank you for saying that. Yes. Thank you. My pleasure. Until next time. Okay. 